Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And this episode, I am going to be talking about the most boring subject it's possible, I think, to pick. You think of all the exciting things you could talk about in sailing. Why on earth would you end up spending an hour talking about batteries? But every boat's got them, unless you're kind of in like a dragon or a laser or something. And I think that for people in our age range, I'm doing kind of air, air bunny rabbits here, whatever our age range is, I think there has been changes in the last couple of years, maybe the last decade, with batteries, with solar cells, and we kind of like need to get up to speed with this stuff. That's the kind of overwhelming idea I got once I started to research this uh, for the installation that I want to do on the Open 60. I started to realize that I have a lot of knowledge about batteries because obviously I've been a mechanic, so we're putting them in and out of cars. I've been working on the technical side with boats for years, but I started to realize there was a gap between what I thought I knew about batteries and what's actually going on. So this is not going to be some like super technical podcast all about formulas and numbers and you know millimeters and degrees. Now just just relax. It's going to be fine. We're just going to like generally kind of chat about batteries. That's about the best I can do at the moment until I've got all the facts um, tied down tight. Maybe we'll do a more in-depth one later on for those who are interested. But I do get a lot of questions about people asking me about lithium batteries. I referred to uh, a job I did last year driving my friend AJ's Formula 40 Trimaran Spirit, and it had lithium batteries on board and solar cells. And I never had to charge. In fact, there was no way to charge that boat. That boat had been living out in Asia and had been set up by the previous owners that there was no way to charge it apart from the solar cells. And I thought, this is not going to work. We're on the US East Coast here. I'm going to deliver the boat from Georgia to Boston, and I'm going to be offshore trying to work out how on earth to get the outboard engine to charge it. But I was completely wrong. It ran the entire way up the coast. I never saw voltages on the batteries less than 13. And it was just like some kind of wacky magical mystery thing i kept looking at this dial going how can it still be 13 volts it's things been running all night it's got an autopilot on it it's got lights it's got the radio it's got the nav gear and yet those two normal car size batteries ran that boat perfectly now granted it's not a huge autopilot system and all of the lighting was led and the displays were a bit newer so they're not really pulling that much power but however you want to sort of slice it out magic was occurring inside the boat so obviously as with everybody else my overall kind of impression of lithium batteries without really focusing on the subject is that they have a lot to offer but they're hugely expensive um, and therefore in my little internal sort of accountant stock market guy or stock no not stock market like stock taking guy the guy that's inside my head going do we really need that do we really need that he has for a long time been saying, well, you know, it would be nice, but unless someone's going to give them to me, I'm not about to fork out for lithium batteries. This little podcast here is to <laughs> share with your little internal stock taking people, maybe uh, batteries on the boat. Maybe it's time for a bit of an update and to do things in a slightly different way because the benefits of lithium batteries, where we've got to now in this technology is startling to say the least. So we have to start the story off first with um, 
let me start it and keep it, as I say, it could end up getting super boring, this, couldn't it? It could just be lots and lots of chit-chat about batteries. Let me tell you the situation I've got on board, um, say, Challenger, one of the boats I've driven the most, and I can tie in a few other things and then see if there's anything within this that fits in with your experiences on your boat. Um, and then if you want to make the same change uh, I am, you'll be doing it for the same reasons I am. My experience with the batteries uh, on 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 the race boats I've been running is that we tend to run quite large size batteries. We run what's called an 8D battery, which is like a really, really big, long tractor style battery. It's like the equivalent of three car batteries, give or take, kind of stacked alongside each other. They are incredibly heavy. They're about 70 kilos, which is, I know, what's that, like 160, 170 pounds, somewhere around that. So each battery on its own, just getting it into the boat and getting it into position is a big deal and then when it's in position obviously one of the things that we're aware of with any batteries inside the boat is that it's got to be secured as well as you possibly can this normally will involve some kind of straps that come up around it um, it may have some kind of lexan um, screw down bolt down arrangement it, it whatever it is that's inside your boat the things have to be absolutely secure but when you're talking about a dead weight of 70 kilos that's probably more than most people's anchors and it's just sitting there ready to kind of let loose in the event of a, a some kind of rollover instance. So the great weight of those batteries is one thing that we just accept because, you know, electricity's in there. We need electricity, so we take whatever we can take. The thing which I've become more aware of over, well, I guess, like 15 years of running these boats is that when one cell inside that 8D battery goes, the whole battery is pooched, and then i got to throw the whole thing away. So my experience in the last just couple of years is that rather than going by default to those very big batteries, I'm now starting to realize that it's better to divide that single individual battery up into three batteries, three normal car size batteries. And then if anything goes wrong, I can just replace out the unit which has got the busted cell. So when I'm talking about a normal uh, battery for a car, the sizings for this stuff is on what's called the BCI battery group size chart. There we go. Uh, I have no idea what BCI stands for. Maybe I'll work it out as I'm trying to go through here. But you get group 24, group 27, and group 31 batteries. They're the ones that we normally find in cars. The group 24 is like a small battery. Like if you've got a small car, you have that smaller battery inside. It's about 10 inches by 6 inches, then about 8 inches high. That's we could do everything in centimeters as well. You can work it out, right? Times by 2.5. The tw group 27 batteries are like 12 inches long by six inches wide by eight high. So it's basically the same battery, it's just two inches longer. And then the group 31s are a little bit taller. They're about an inch taller and another inch longer. So a big tractor battery um, would be something like a group 31. It's gonna be a bit longer than most batteries you see. It's gonna stand a bit higher than most batteries you see. The Group 27 batteries are going to be the kind of battery that's on a, an SUV or some kind of vehicle. Maybe, I know, on your on your boat, maybe your starting battery would be something like a Group 27. And then Group 24s would be on smaller cars. So we can talk about sizes of batteries. The 8Ds that I'm talking about are something completely different. Again, they're like three Group 27 or Group 20, 31 batteries. So these big batteries now I've realized I'm going to get away from having the big individual units and I'm going to make them smaller units. So I was feeling pretty, pretty smart about all that. And then I started looking at the weight and obviously the weight stays the same. You've still got the same amount of materials going on. They're just divided up a slightly different way. 
and I started asking the question, can we get anything any lighter? So the first thing I did was look around to see if the basic lead acid batteries have anything, you know, are there any variations? Is there any difference? I know there's gel batteries, there's AGM batteries, there's all sorts of different things, there's sealed ones, there's valve regulated. Are any of those like particularly better than the others? And the, the answer to that kind of is no. <laughs> they have different little things about them which are helpful, but none of it's like really make or break. The lead acid battery, as we know it, was invented in the 1859-1860 by uh, Gaston Plant. Okay, so it's old technology. We, we know that. And, you, you know, there's some interesting things in archaeology of like old earthenware pots. I think they call it the, the Baghdad battery, was it? It was like an earthenware pot with electrodes inside it. And there was some thought that perhaps it's been an early sort of battery. But getting basic electrical output from um, very basic uh, items has been around for a long time. The, the feature that we know now, the kind of the, the, the version of it that we know now is from about 1860. So yeah, it's only 160 years old and we're still using it. The thing about the batteries previous to 1860s is that they'd not had much capacity for what they were being asked to do. Um, Gaston Plant, what he did is he created a different way that the, the plates inside the batteries would have greater surface area. You see, I'm just trying to skim across the top of this subject. I don't want to get like bedded down loads and loads of details, but basically found a way of getting a, uh, a much greater surface area of those components inside so they could react a lot more easily. But since then, give or take, the only changes that we've seen is that some of the batteries are, as we say, like sealed. They do have a, a, a blow-off valve in them in case they got like extraordinarily overcharged by some some methodology so they have ones that are pretty sealed and you'll get ones that have those little um uh, visual things you can look in there's a little green thing in there and if the green thing's not there then the battery's knackered or it's gone flat or whatever but sealed ones are a lot safer for most uh, options because there's no off gassing when you charge a battery in a normal scenario on board a boat on in a car whatever you're looking at the discharge of probably hydrogen gas out of the battery. And if that builds up, that can be a big problem because clearly it's explosive. The sealed batteries get around that. They would only ever off gas in the event that they were massively overcharged. Other than that, the only other things you can really look at is things like the, um, the gel batteries and the uh, fiberglass matte batteries, the absorbent glass batteries called uh, AGM. So the gel batteries... They just basically have silica gel put in with the uh, the liquid, the sulfuric acid that's inside the battery. That just means if the battery's punctured, it's not going to drop acid quite as easily as it would have done some other way. So it's kind of good, but it's really nothing that amazing. The AGM batteries, they do work in a slightly different way, which makes them a little bit more energy dense. And we're going to be talking about energy density a little bit longer, but a little bit later, a little bit more. But the... Um, the AGM batteries have fiberglass mat in between. They have CSM, chop strand mat. You know, I hear my name CSM all over the place. Ch CSM as chop strand mat is when I hear it in a boatyard. And then when I go to Walmart and they're asking for the customer service manager to go to the checkouts, I have this entire time spent within the supermarket with CSM to the checkouts being constantly repeated over the uh, tannoy. So, you know, cut me some slack here. But yes, it's got... Uh, it's got fiberglass mat between the plates of lead 
and that has a couple of effects. It means that you can pack the plates much, much closer together. And when gas is produced through the charging or discharge process, then that, um, that gas is able to transfer to the uh, nearest plate and continue the uh, electrochemical reaction, which is giving you your battery's capacity, rather than bubbling up to the surface of the um, acid and then being lost as, as off-gas. So it does make them more energy dense, i.e. that you can get more plates and, and more uh, uh, of these fiber mat separators into the same size. So your group 24, your group 31, whatever it is, battery for the same size, it will have more power. But because you're fitting more stuff in there, it's also going to get heavier. You're still dealing with lead plates inside of something. And you know, whilst it might be gel or it might be saturated um, fiberglass matting, you're still dealing with sulfuric acid, which is a liquid which has a lot of weight to it. So all in all, whatever benefits uh, were kind of baked into the, uh, the battery situation in the late 1860s, there hasn't been much development since then. A couple of the characteristics of batteries, which I've had to sort of struggle with in the, in the installations I've got, one of them is that if they do go low, if, if, if a lead battery goes below 50%, most manufacturers say, or certainly below 20, 25% on a deep, on a high quality deep discharge battery, the capacity of the battery when it's next recharged will be less. You can't run these batteries down, down, down to the bottom and then expect them to come all the way back up again. The plates end up getting sulfated. Um, the sulfate crystals extend from one plate to the next and they start to short out the plates. And overall, the battery's efficiency is lost. So if you've got a 200 amp hour 8D battery, that's one of those very big batteries, the output from the battery is only gonna be, in reality though, about 50% of that number because any lower than that and you're going to damage the battery so you can take your 200 amp hours and basically cross that out and say 100 the other thing that we need to bear in mind is that if the discharge from a lead acid battery is happening very very quickly like i know you're running your capstan or um, powering up a stove or a microwave or something through an inverter like there's a lot of draw on the battery again the discharge of the battery is going to be different if you have a high uh, a large amount of electricity a high output from a lead acid battery then there is a sliding scale of how much capacity the battery will have this is the number which is uh, is it pukert's law this is you'll see this if you've got battery monitors on your boat that allow you to set like a decent amount of information in there and they will have a figure which ranges around one it could be one or 1.016 or 1.2 or this is pukert's law and it's how much discharge the batteries are able to offer dependent on the, the level of, uh, of load that's on them. If you put a high level of load on, they discharge very quickly and don't have the capacity you're expecting. If you have a low amount of load on them, then they will discharge uh, closer to their rated capacity and they'll do it over a longer period of time. So you can see that lead acid batteries are a good option for car manufacturers. The nature of charging on a car is that the you get in, you start the car up, there's quite a lot of load has to go out from the battery to the starter motor, no problem, it can handle that. And then the car runs for a, a massive amount of time compared to that initial turning of the key. Even if you were just nipping down the shops, it's still hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of times more than the amount of time it took you to start the car. 
And so you've got a decent amount of time to get power back into the battery. When you have a situation on a boat, we're actually asking something completely different of the batteries. What we want is we want the batteries to discharge over a period of time, nice and slowly, all of their capacity available, and then we want them to recharge really, really quickly. Lead acid batteries cannot recharge that fast. They can't discharge fast because it hits their capacity. They can't recharge fast. They are, however, very cheap. And that is ultimately where this all kind of comes from. Lead acid batteries still account for more than 40% of the batteries that are sold of any configuration anywhere. So with that in mind, we can see why it's a nice simple option for on a standard gasoline or diesel powered car. It's easy for a battery to be chucked in there, which is a probably sealed, maintenance free, but lead acid battery. The lithium batteries that we're talking about, they have completely different uh, kind of personalities to them. And that's what started to get me interested now because the benefits over the lifetime of the battery more than make up for the extra amount of money that you have to pay out for them. So I said I'd describe the setup on my boat. Normally what we have is these big 8D batteries, two of them. And then we have a big alternator on the engine. The alternator on your car engine or on your boat engine, that's the thing that produces the electricity, which is then fed back into the batteries. On the most simple system, which is closest really to what you get on a car, the uh, alternator kicks into gear when the uh, engine starts, and then it will have a high initial output. It will then monitor the voltage on the battery. As that voltage starts to climb back up to what is a charged state, then the alternator will ramp down and ramp down how much power it's putting out until by the end of it, all that's really happening on you on a long journey is the battery is fully charged, the alternator is running all the electronics inside the car and it's just providing a little trickle charge to the battery until the car stops, the battery is ready to go for the next restart cycle. The way that I've uh, built into the boats of being able to improve their charging characteristics is that we have Balmar charge controllers. Balmar is a company which has been producing alternators, charge controllers for a long time. The charge controllers we use are not much bigger than, if you've got like two new smartphones and stack them on top of each other, it's about that size. You used to say it's like a couple of packets of cigarettes, something like that. They're not big, but what they have is a very smart brain inside them, which is able to take over control of the charging cycle from the alternator and then do a much better job of putting power into the batteries. Alternators are primarily manufactured to go on trucks or to go on cars and they have this characteristic that they will throw power in and then very quickly they will ramp down how much power they're putting out until it's just just enough to get the job done but on a, a kind of style which is more suited to automotive rather than marine. They're not in any way trying to charge the, the, the batteries fast, they're just trying to get them done in the end. The Balmar charge controllers have all sorts of different settings and uh, pre-programmed um, programs which will allow you to get the, it lined up with your batteries. But then as it starts to run through its cycle, it's doing very hard high charges, it's doing low charges, allowing the batteries to cool down, it comes back with more high charge, and it really gets the very best out of the engine's effort to turn the alternator. Ultimately though, you're not gonna be able to get a gallon in a pint pot. The output from the alternator more often than not, actually exceeds the battery's abilities to take on charge or to take on charge and not heat up. And so the charger 
The charging cycle has to be slowed down by the controller so that the battery itself doesn't overheat. So I have batteries which are extraordinarily heavy. We have batteries which are not particularly energy dense, which are based on 160 year old technology, which can't be discharged below about 50 or maybe 20, 25%, but they're nowhere near what they're, they're rated for. And their capacity is dependent on how hard you pull against them. So all in all, whilst I have a lot of good, um, what should I say, instincts when it comes to these batteries, because I've been dealing with them for decades, the fact of the matter is that the world has kind of moved on a little bit and I need to start getting myself switched into new gear with the idea of putting lithium batteries onto, onto the boat. So the first thing that I did was went and had a look at a, a website which was able to give me some information and compare directly what's going on with lead acid batteries and the lithium phosphate batteries, which is what we're really talking about when we are talking about lithium batteries. Lithium ion batteries will be things that are in your phone and in small uh, you know, electronics around the house, but lithium ion phosphate batteries, and we'd see that as written down as L-I-F-E-P-O-4. That's, that's all the same thing, right? So it looks like LIFEPO4. The first thing we can look at is what are the positive characteristics for us on the boat. Now, the first of them is that these lithium batteries have a much longer lifespan than your lead acid batteries. And I guess at this point, we have to kind of add a caveat in there. You can keep the actual box, which is your battery, and it's in that position doing that thing for many, many years. Okay. But what is the actual capacity of it? Is it in any way ready to take on a difficult circumstance where it's not charged for a long time? Does it still have any of its deep discharge capabilities? Can it still take a big load? The actual realistic lifetime of a battery that's in regular uh, usage and is working on board the boat in a normal way is only between about one and three years. After that point, it is not doing exactly what it is that you bought it for. It's doing a lesser version of that. It's not as strong as it used to be. It doesn't charge as quickly as it used to do. And Unfortunately, you do end up in a situation then where if anything just gets out of the ordinary, maybe you go somewhere very cold. I've had that experience. Suddenly the batteries just cock and that's the end of it. The lithium batteries have a lifespan of between five and 10 years. Pretty much every manufacturer will give you a figure of around 3000 charge and discharge cycles. Okay, That is way more than lead acid battery, which is between 200 and 1000 cycles. It's just a fact, and I think that's the hardest thing we have to kind of do in this, is to suddenly take a look at this detail and ask some questions. The one in your car will last forever, give or take, because unless you're at that point where the car is very slow to start, you know, it's, we're not really, I don't really have cars like that anymore. It either starts or it doesn't, and if it doesn't, the tow truck's coming, um, or you're in there with uh, the Haynes manual trying to work it out yourself, but it's either gonna start or it isn't on a modern car. Back in the 60s and 70s, we're cranking and cranking. Oh, it's a cold morning. Don't worry. I know this car, yeah, sometimes gets a bit damp in the distributor cap and cranking, cranking. The batteries are being asked to do a lot more. Now, inside of a car, it's almost the perfect scenario for a lead-acid battery. It just starts the car, which is easily able to do, and then all the rest of its time, it's just being charged, 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 and you never get down to the bottom of like exactly how much capacity is in this. On the boat, 
you only need to you know forget to charge or something and those batteries starting to get very very low with the cabin lights dimming and suddenly then all your instruments are starting to complain because you're less than 11 volts and it has a big effect so we need to be realistic so does a lithium battery last longer yes it does <laughs> it just does and don't tell me oh i can keep batteries for 10 years all you're doing is keeping the box in there and giving it somewhere to live as it uh, slowly becomes less and less useful. The other thing is that the lithium batteries are a lot less prone to problems caused by deep discharge. And this is from the, the, the main big difference, I think, with these batteries. I had to kind of get my head around. Inside the battery, there is a load of electronics. There's a circuit board in there, and that's the battery management system. And this BMS that's in there, it does two things. If the battery gets too low to the point where this chemistry of this lithium phosphate battery is going to get damaged, it will cut off the output from the battery. It'll actually stop the battery from allow it will stop the battery from getting too flat. So that already is a massive protection point. And you might be saying, oh, well, you know, I don't want to have it that it turns itself off because maybe I need to run it right down to the bottom. They turn themselves off at like 10 volts. There's nothing on the boat apart from an old um, bulb that's going to still be working usefully at 10 volts. If it's 12 volt electronics, by the time you get into 11 volts, you've got all your instruments flashing at you and you know things that require decent amount of uh, processing power, like a chart plot or what have you. It's going to start exhibiting all sorts of weird gremlins if the battery's voltage is getting too low. So the uh, system inside it, the BMS, will cut off. And going the other way, if it gets overcharged, if there's too much power going into the batteries, it will also cut off the incoming voltage. So two of the big areas which you struggle with um, when things get away from the normal, i.e. you get a very deeply discharged battery or suddenly the alternator is throwing out um, fire and brimstone and it's charging the batteries at 100 amps and won't stop, which I've, I've had two times before that I can think of. It's amazing that those smart uh, chargers uh, we had in the 90s they actually didn't used to fail safe they used to fail to a hundred percent allowing the alternator to do whatever it wanted to do which um, then you can end up with batteries exploding and lead acid batteries exploding is uh, another one of the big uh, downsides of it sulfuric acid all around the boat and obviously on anybody is a massive massive problem um, Lead, uh, the lithium batteries are much, much uh, safer and just their chemistry allows them to go down to a much lower discharge point. So even if you say, well, it's going to cut itself off, yeah, it's going to cut itself off at such a low point, it, it doesn't really matter. So the battery is protecting itself. The other thing is that they are much lighter. And this is the thing as a, as a racer, I did have to bear in mind. One of the 8D batteries that we have is uh, weight, the weight of it is 68 kilos. So that's like over 160 odd pounds. It's like the weight of a person. It's like the weight of a person in the in the boat, right? The lithium batteries are about a quarter of that weight. To get the same amount of uh, uh, power out of the thing, to get the same amount of capacity, it is so much lighter as to be ridiculous. So to give you an idea here, I've got a couple of um, lithium batteries here on the uh, page in front of me. This one's got 250 amp hour capacity. It's um, the equivalent of an 8D battery, the things that I've been running in my boats for the, for the longest time. But the weight of the thing is in a whole other class. So first of all, we have to bear in mind that 250 amp hour lead acid batteries be about 78 kilos. 
this little chappy, he comes in at 30 kilos. So it's half the weight. Okay, now I said it was four times better. How can that be? Bear in mind that that 250 amp hour 8D battery, it cannot go below 50% charge. Otherwise, you're going to screw the battery over. So you could do it a few times, sure. But if you start doing that for hundreds of cycles, it, the battery's going to be pooched. So my 70 kilo battery with 250 amp hours has actually only really got about 125 amp hours in it. I can get a 250 amp hour lithium battery rated at an, you know, it's gonna give out exactly what it's rated on the side for. It's half the weight. So I'm actually gonna get 250 absolutely usable uh, amp hours out of something that weighs half the weight. So to get up to the same weight, to get up to 70 kilos, I can take two of those batteries. And that means I'm gonna have four times the capacity. And that's where the kind of the big change in this, the, the real sort of mm, new space I have to populate for my head for batteries. The batteries are lighter, they look after themselves, their output is the same all the time. No more going back to the dash and like, okay, we're at 12.4, 12.3, 12 12.2. How many miles have I done with my logbook saying in it for the crew, if the batteries drop below 12.4, um, and that would be with load on 12.4, then we're going to be charging the batteries. That's not the same with these um, lithium batteries at all. Now, how do you find out where they're actually at when they're just constantly giving out 12.8 uh, to 13 volts? They have a data point that comes out of them and a cable that comes up to then a little uh, display, a little LCD display, which has got its own brains. And it gives you a readout on the battery. It also tells you about the individual cells inside the battery. If you get a little bit more technical with this stuff and start looking around on the internet, you'll discover you can actually build your own uh, lithium phosphate batteries. And those batteries, you can put them into any container that you want. I see some for sale now, which I was kind of interested in. And they are literally a pellet case with all of the gubbins inside them. And you buy it like that. <laughs> it's a pellet case with a battery in it. So... I don't know, it all needs a bit of thinking about, but when you're talking about in a real world situation, you can have four times the energy density um, in the battery, you know, what's not to like about that. I think the thing in the end of this, which um, brings out the best course of action is if you look at a very simple kind of uh, example, if you take a normal like group 27 battery, working inside the boat, doing all the things that you expect to do, you're staying on board, you're cruising, you're living with the boat all the time, and you are discharging a lead acid battery down to 50% and you're doing that daily and then bringing it back up on a normal charge, that battery is going to last about two to three years. If nothing goes wrong inside it, uh, if there's no uh, issue with sulfation or a big vibration, a bang, a drop off a wave and suddenly that sulfate drops to the bottom and shorts the battery, you're going to get about two to three years out of it. A similar usage with a lithium battery, you're going to get eight years out of it. So the buy-in point is higher with the lithium batteries, but if you look over the lifetime of the batteries, we could say that it's, you could at least pay twice as much at the beginning, and you're gonna end up with a battery which is uh, gonna you know, last twice as long, so it's the same per cycle. That is pretty much where we're at now. Now, if you compare the cheapest, crappiest batteries on the market with a lithium ion battery, sorry, not lithium ion, I've got to be careful with that, lithium uh, iron phosphate battery. If you compare the two, you're gonna end up with two wildly different numbers. If I go to Walmart and go and buy a cheapo crappy battery and then go and buy a lithium battery, it's 
going to be wildly different. But if I took a pretty like standard uh, battery and, and did some comparisons with it or standard battery capacity, maybe we could start to get a feel for exactly how much range there is on the cost of these things. As it stands at the moment, if I go out and buy a standard group 27 100 amp hour battery, this is very likely the kind of thing you get in on a boat unless you're going to go for big commercial sizes. It's going to cost me 297 Canadian dollars, which is about 235 US dollars, something like that. It's going to have a 100 amp hour rating, but from what we know already, we won't be able to discharge it any more than about 50 amps, amp hours down, right? So we're going to get something that says 100 amp hours on the side of it, but actually it's only going to be 50 amp hours. The other thing is that depending on the usage that we're going to be using it for, it may not even discharge at that rate because of Pucut's law, it may discharge quicker than we're expecting. So then how does that compare? Well, actually, it's not that bad when we compare that to lithium phosphate batteries. If we were to look at a 100 amp hour lithium phosphate battery, just looking online, going through eBay, something like that, and getting a, a mid-ranger, we're going to be looking at about 970 Canadian dollars tax in or 769 US. Now, that depends on the taxation in the state that you're in. But we're looking at a big difference there. We're taking a 100 amp hour battery on one side, which is you know going to cost us barely 300 bucks. And then suddenly we're throwing that up to nearly a thousand dollars Canadian. The difference is when you start to look at quality batteries as opposed to just looking at cheap crappy batteries which are not going to last if you get something like a deep cycle hybrid gel battery that's going to be around 400 canadian dollars so 400 canadian dollars is going to suddenly be getting us into a lot closer ballpark with the uh, lithium batteries when you discover the fact that the lithium battery is going to last for twice as long and it's going to have twice as much capacity during its lifetime so suddenly my $1,000 battery compared to a $800 worth of batteries, it's looking pretty good. I say that because if you want that full capacity, you're going to need to actually have two standard lead batteries to get that to work for you. If you are able to complete the task that you want to do with a 100 amp hour uh, lead battery, then you actually can get away with a 50 amp hour lithium battery because you're going to get the full use of that battery. When that happens, you're looking at about a 460, 470 Canadian dollar battery. Instead of a $400, um, 100 amp hour lead battery, you're looking at a $450 lithium battery, which is going to be what? A, a quarter of the weight, <laughs> a quarter of the weight, have twice the lifetime and it will go from top to bottom doing everything that the other battery did and not trying to confuse you with a hundred written on the side when it's actually only 50 that you're getting a look at. So there's quite a few things to kind of bear in mind with this. It's, it's not all snake oil. There are some downsides to it. You do need to be careful where you're getting these things from. There are obviously foreign markets which are able to pump out these things at an incredible rate and that can lead to low build quality on some of them. It doesn't tend to be, from what I look online and see the horror stories, the issues seem to be that a lot of the manufacturers will tell you it's 150 amp hour or 120 amp hour lithium phosphate battery. 
And then when you get it and do proper tests on it, you'll find that the actual rated output of the thing is 100 amp hours. I haven't seen much of that as a problem on YouTube and on the various sites that I've been on to. If people are ordering 100 amp hours, they are getting 100 amp hours. The other thing is that the build quality can lead to things like the uh, case that this lot goes into. Remember, inside there is not just full of liquid like it used to be with the old batteries that we know about. There's like gubbins inside there, and those cases can pop open just where the thermosetting glue is on them, and they could pop open. But again, that is not actually a critical aspect of the operation of the battery. It's not sealing in acid like it used to do. It's just sealing in the, the packages, which are the lithium phosphate batteries themselves and the circuit board that goes in there. One of the things that lithium batteries also have is a lot of them will have cold weather cutouts. If the temperature range goes much below minus 20, the chemistry of the battery can be damaged. A lot of them will actually cut off charging at zero. So that's not going to be a great thing if you are trying to then use the battery uh, in very, very cold conditions. But manufacturers have already found a way around this because they are actually putting heating mats in the bottom of those containers, the container which has all the gubbins inside it, and those uh, heaters in the bottom, which is, it's kind of like a plant warming pad like you'd get, uh, you know, for if you're a gardener, but underneath your seedlings on the, on the window ledge. Those little pads will warm the cells up, bringing them just above zero, then they can charge. They can discharge at cold temperatures. It's charging them at cold temperatures, which seems to be the problem. So always round here, we've got a lot of benefits going on. So what I am going to do with, um, with the Open60 is I'm looking to change up to a lithium phosphate setup. I have, at the moment, got the wiring inboard the boat for six solar cells, um, and then that was going down to these two large 8D batteries. I think what we're going to do is we're going to place the 8D batteries out with three Group 27 batteries, which should just kind of line up, and then we'll... Um, uh, obviously wire those all together now this boat the whole boat runs on 12 volts so it's not an easy uh, not, a, not a problematic installation we just need to make sure that we're aware of whether we're putting them in series or putting them in parallel but if you want to do the same trick with your boat maybe you'll choose to stack things up and put some things in series and then some things in parallel and that'll give you 24 volts if your boat runs on 24 volts the benefits that I see is that I can lock these things down tight and easy uh, a lot more securely I believe than the setup with the lead batteries before each individual battery only weighs like 10-15 kilos so suddenly tying that down is well within the bounds of you know normal screws normal knots normal threads rather than one giant uh, 8D battery that weighs 70 kilos and I'm trying to affix it to the inside of the boat if I blow out a particular battery if something happens something fails maybe maybe some of those clever electronics inside have a problem and it needs to be changed out i can still run the entire system just that battery will be down and then i can replace that one out and it'd be my intention to take a couple of spare batteries with me so that they would not be being used they would just be sitting there ready to go uh, and a lot of these batteries the lithium batteries when you receive them they're actually like switched off that relay inside which stops the output if the battery gets too low and stops the input if the charging voltage is too high that can also be set to a transport mode where then there's no way that you can bridge the terminals with it if it's in storage inside the boat so it just needs to be secured somewhere covered over cap put on it a top put on it whatever it is and then put to that transport setting and it can just sit there in case of disaster
Now, I have had some issues with batteries in the past, which have really had a big effect on me. When I was sailing uh, between Cape Town and Wellington on the Velux race, the old 8D batteries that we had inside the boat, which had been completely fine, suddenly as we got into the colder climbs, I say we, me and the boat, it was a solo race, but when I got down into those cold climbs, suddenly the battery performance was really starting to drop. And the whole reason for getting onto this subject on this edition of the podcast is because the last time I did the podcast, I had to open up my logbook from back then. Uh, and I realized that the back couple of pages here are just filled with me making notes about the batteries. What happened was I was uh, on my way to Wellington, but about 1,000, 1,200 miles south of Australia, as you might imagine, on the racing line between Africa and New Zealand. And the battery started getting so bad that with the low light conditions, the solar cells could barely charge them. I was racing, so I didn't have like excessive amounts of diesel on board. And however much I ran the engine, the batteries never seemed to get up anywhere, uh, you know, anywhere near the kind of voltage they should be at. So I actually ended up having to come off the racing line a thousand miles, come up into Australian territorial waters, A, because it was more sunny, so I could get more uh, power from my, my photovoltaic cells on deck. But also then, if it all went Pete Tong completely wrong, I could actually go into Australia and, and come up with some kind of uh, new battery solution, I guess. As it was, I was able to go through the Tasman Strait and set off across the Tasman Sea to uh, New Zealand. As I got to New Zealand, I ended up going into a storm, which I was unable to dodge around, and uh, my, my arrival was somewhat delayed. I can remember, though, the last morning that I was off of New Zealand. At that point, I had no diesel left at all, and the batteries basically wouldn't charge. And when the guys came on board the boat, I went through the finish line, they jumped on board. There was Aston, my crewman, and Alan Nebauer, a fantastic offshore racer. Maybe we can do an interview with him one day. That'd be amazing. He's one of my heroes of offshore racing. Um, and Alan jumped on. They actually had a jerry can of oil, uh, of, of oil, of fuel oil, of diesel with them. And we that was the only way that we were able to keep the electronics going. So I've been at the very edge of what's going on. That experience actually led to me learning how to sail the Whitbread 60 and the Open 60 with no autopilot on my own. And I did that because I was thrown into a situation with those batteries failing off the uh, coast of Australia with the fact that these big powerful boats, if you don't have the electronics, there's actually, and you don't have other crew members, there's no way of keeping them going, or so I thought. I have since learned how to do that. But if you are relying on autopilot in a solo situation, you better be very aware of your batteries, very aware of your charging methods, very aware of uh, everything relating to that because without the power at those autopilot rams you've got a big problem so the other part of the equation here i hope i've not lost you too much <laughs> i've i like it's one of those areas i've just been like yeah lithium it sounds great i'd love that the prices now though are getting to a point those chinese manufacturers i i should say on the one hand some chinese manufacturers you know you're wondering what you're going to get but overall, it's actually Chinese manufacturers and Chinese uh, pursuit of photovoltaic and lithium phosphate technology, which has led to massive increases in the efficiency of solar cells and massive increases uh, in the uh, reliability of the chemistry of the lithium phosphate battery and its usability in the everyday market. And of course, everything we're talking about also refers to RVs and to houses, which I alluded to at the beginning. 
you don't want to be getting some big solar setup on your house and like yes we are now kings of the world we can charge our own tesla whenever we want and then you're piling all of that down into lead acid batteries and you can only get 50 percent of it back that wouldn't be like a super smart move so lithium technology definitely goes very much hand in hand with the photovoltaic system the solar panel system and that's the other part of the thing that i'm going to have to work out for um, for the open 60 so as you know the challenge which i've set myself is going west around the world and that means i'm going to be in the southern ocean for a couple of months and from everything that you've seen online and on tv or your own experience down there certainly all of my experience it's a very doomy gloomy kind of part of the world particularly when you're going east because you tend to be in storms all the time you're actually literally trying to find storms now to just put a little caveat in there you're not trying to find the middle of the storm you're trying to run around on the edge of the storm so you've got the wind speed that you want the wind speed that you need for high boat performance but not too close to it so as you're going through the southern ocean you're constantly varying your latitude if a big system's coming in behind you from the west which is where they all come from in the southern ocean then you go north and you stay in the same uh, packing of isobars on your uh, uh, your meteorology chart if you want to look at it like that you might be old school and still have a uh, sat uh, no what's it called a weather facts that's the that's the ultimate old school is the weather facts if you've got something like that or if you're looking at grips on your computer where the isobars stack closer and closer together will indicate stronger and stronger wind as they get further apart less wind so you can find a nice place where you've got a great angle and you've got a great wind speed uh, as a modern sailor with all the meteorological information that we've got but you are trying to stay in the edge of storms, which tend to be very overcast. So going east around the world, definitely a lot of memories of a lot of dreary, drudgy kind of English days. Going the other way around the world, I'm aware of the fact that I'm actually going to be trying to pass through storms. And it'd be probably more conducive for me to be going upwind in light airs than trying to go upwind in heavy airs. So there might be a lot more seeking out lighter breeze and there'll be numerous occasions where I pop out the back of a storm where it passes over me going east I'm going west and there should be more sun now what's all this chat about I need to get as much photovoltaic capacity on the boat as I can I had a great opportunity this summer to take a little um, dive into modern solar panels when I found a $550 big size solar panels like the ones that are on the roof of houses I saw it for sale um, supposedly someone had brought it back to the shop because it didn't work and the shop I'm talking about is Canadian Tire which all the Canadians out there will know exactly what I'm talking about the rules in North America for returning things to the store are completely different than Europe I remember working in shops in Europe I remember when people come back there was literally something typed out uh, behind the counter that said try not to allow people to return things I know what the rules are but I know what actually happens in stores coming to North America where you've got big um, people like Canadian Tire, like Walmart, stuff like that, they don't care. They don't care if it's like a year old, three years old, you just bought it, you haven't got the packaging, you've almost to the point where you almost don't need a receipt, you know, certainly in Canada where everyone's very trusting, on my part of Canada, certainly, um, you could almost turn up and say, yeah, like I bought this five years ago and it doesn't work, and they'd almost, within the bounds of comedy, be giving it you back. I'm just getting on top of the fact that this is possible, and if something doesn't work, you can get your money back. Um, but what I've discovered is that if you go to Canadian Tire, there's a little section which is called like manager's specials. And it's all the stuff that people brought back. And because so many of the reasons they give for bringing stuff back are basically crap, 
that they the people in the shop know that the stuff works so they just put it in this area and the the, the uh discounts are deep deep discounts but everything is sold as is so if you've bought it with one of those little yellow labels on you better know how to fix things but i've got like a battery operated lawnmower which is brilliant that runs for 45 minutes it gives me a 45 minute walk every evening in the summer to mow all these lawns around this house that was 50 bucks and it was down from 450 bucks they someone said it doesn't charge it charges just fine there's a big uh shop vac massive like the biggest size shop vac you can get doesn't work uh 30 bucks down from 399 all that happened from me taking it apart is realize is it had got full of something it looked like it was water with a lot of plaster in it and it tipped on its side it had gone in the switch it took two seconds to clean the switch out put it back together boom so <laughs> if you like maybe you can do another podcast which is bargains we could just like the best bargain you've ever had. Hey, you know, I'm always saying to you to write to me, what's the best bargain you've ever got? What's the bit where you're leaving the shop going, I think I just pretty much robbed this store. Don't don't write to me with your shoplifting stories, but if you've ever got a, uh, a deal like that, what else did I get? Oh, I got one of those Coleman on-demand water heaters. You put a little one pound, like a half kilo uh, gas canister into the side of the thing, and then it will um, produce hot water. Like it has a shower head, it has a little collapsible um thing that you put a couple gallon of water in and it's just 50 bucks down from 450 bucks i could go on i could go on but anyway i got this um i got this uh photovoltaic cell i think it was from coleman uh it's rated for five amps in bright sunshine and um it supposedly didn't work connected it on the boat here worked absolutely fine 50 bucks from 550 i couldn't be happier but what it gave me strangely although it's you know almost uh, the, the butt of the joke more than anything else. It gave me a quick look at, albeit not very high end, but newer photovoltaic performance. And I gotta say, that little cell, that little 50 buck cell has been keeping all the batteries on the boat fully charged, no problem at all for the last couple of months. Now, we're not using everything all the time, but there's nav lights on at night, well, there's anchor light on at night. Um, we keep a GPS going so it doesn't get overcharged. It's something i'm able to go down and see what its output is and even like today where it's overcast it's still doing two amps now it is set up literally flat on deck but it's doing two amps all the time so when i start looking at what i'm going to get onto the boat for a new set of solar cells as we go forward into 2021 i have to bear in mind that any experience that i had of them before the last time i put you know solar cells on a boat was 10 years ago those were 80 watt units and they were good for nothing and even like a little bit overcast they'd be barely pumping out one amp they were useless the most i would ever see from them um, it, down in the southern ocean was like 0 0.6 0 0.8 something like that so old technology uh, an old installation the new cells that i see now are fantastic you get that that big size they're like uh, one and a half foot by three foot they they come in three basic varieties you've got the hard solid ones which would be like up on top of your bimini on a cruising boat or on the roof of your house you've got the semi-rigid ones which is the ones i'm interested in which will allow a certain degree of um shaping so you can conform them to the shapes of the deck because obviously the decks are not flat flat they've got a bit of curve to them or you can shape them to the uh, curve on the coach house roof on the race boat um, or you get the fully flexible ones. And I think a lot of um, uh, a four by four guys will use those. They're very thin. They're just up on top of the uh, the, the trailer or up on top of the um, the roof racks on the four by four. 
Um, you can roll them up. You can you can wrap them around something and put them out in the sun. You can move them all over the place. So you got to pick first like how you want it to work out. For me, it's the semi-rigid ones, and they come with either a, a smooth uh, exterior, it's kind of like a little bit matte, or they come with a, a ridged one, which is something you actually stand on, which is not slippery. And that's going to be important for me because they're going to be going onto the deck of the boat at the two back corners underneath where the backstays go. That isn't an area that I often go to, but if I am going to that corner to do something with the main sheet, do something with the boom, I don't need to have like an ice rink down there. They are not as sticky as the deck. You could improve that if it was a race boat by putting a coat of Kiwi grip over them, which is a non-slip, which is see-through. But you know, just keeping your head about you, it's, it's normally not an issue. On the uh, coach house roof, there is a lot more curvature. They do fit on there. You do have to be a bit more careful though standing on them because they, they can be a lot more slippery than if there was just uh, grit in that area. So as I'm looking at it, basically the charge controllers is the other part of the system that goes between the solar cells and the batteries. The charge controllers can handle up to about um, 20 to 22 amps max. So if you're gonna start to connect uh, a big bank of batteries to a big bank of solar cells, clearly, the output from the cell, if each cell is five amps for the ones that I'm looking at, I can only ever do them in four together. Otherwise, it's going to be either the output of the cells will be clipped uh, by the charge controller or just stop that extra power going in there, or indeed that you would overwhelm the charge controller. So for me, I'm looking at the moment, I'm going to have 12 panels on the boat. Now that sounds quite a lot. I should say first that the cost of them is is getting better and better as well. And even cheap ones which are coming off of um, Amazon and eBay, a lot of them actually do some reviews. Have a look at like the cheapest one and then go online and look at the reviews. I've seen loads of particularly 4x4 guys in Australia reviewing the most expensive and the least expensive one that they can find on Amazon and their results are basically the same. So the prices I'm looking at at the moment are about 140 Canadian dollars for one semi-rigid uh, with a textured grip on it, semi-rigid, uh, 100 watt solar panel. That would be throwing out 12 volts and it'll do five amps max. The question for me then is how many batteries to have on the boat and how many solar cells to have on the deck. The way I'm looking at it is perhaps a little bit simplistic, but in terms of the battery boxes that I have, which are good to take 8D batteries, I can put three group 27 lithium phosphate batteries into each one of those boxes and together that that little bank of three will give me 300 amp hours now the battery that would have gone in there before would have been a 200 or 225 amp hour uh, lead acid battery which actually had a rating of 100 amp hours if i don't discharge it beyond manufacturer's recommendation at 50 percent so in the same box now i've got three times as much potential usable energy and then there's going to be two of those where I did have two 8D batteries before. Now I'm going to have six group 27 batteries. Now they're going to have to be fed their power by the charge controllers. I think I can get 12 cells on deck. So that means I'm going to have four chargers. I'm doing that because the cells can go slightly over the five amp rating. That's just a kind of median that, and, a, and a, an expected value that the manufacturer puts onto it. If I have four cells, sitting on one charge controller, which is only rated for 20 amps. If any of them do manage to come together and get a better output than five 
amps, I want to take advantage of that. I don't really want to have it clipped off for, for no reason. I'm in the business here of spending thousands of dollars and taking a lot of the time and effort to get power into the system. So I'm not going to create a bottleneck that I already know exists before I even began. So I'm going to get three cells, 300 watt cells, each rated for five amps, but we know it could go a bit beyond that. And they're going to feed into a 20 amp charge controller. That's great because that leaves loads of uh, spare capacity. We're going to have four charge controllers then sending the batteries uh, the power. Now that may seem pretty simple, but there's one other detail that I need to consider on all this stuff. The deck of the boat, as I beat through the Southern Ocean going west around the world, the sun is always going to be to the north of me. So if I'm on a port tack as I go through the Southern Ocean with the boat heeling, with the mast pointing down towards Antarctica, the deck of the boat will not be facing the sun, which is definitely going to be to the north. The ones which are on the, the cabin top, now they may well be pointing somewhat towards the north. So you're actually only going to get the ones on the cabin uh, to, to, to feed power into the batteries. Where that power is going is going to be important because if the ones on the cabin are feeding to one set of batteries and the ones on the deck are feeding to another set of batteries, you could end up with the fact that your batteries are getting discharged a lot more when you're on one tack than the other. So I need to just be a little bit aware of how that power comes down and how it's fed into the batteries. The batteries will be under a constant load the whole time because you've got obviously all of the navigation instruments uh, working. You've got lights on inside and outside the boat and then you've got the autopilot. Now how much does the autopilot pull? The autopilot on a 12 volt system is going to pull between 6 and 10 amps. If it's in very heavy seas and it's having to move those big rudders around um, a lot of power in the main, it's going gonna, it's gonna to put more work in. The, the good thing with modern autopilot systems is that they're able to hold the tiller at an angle. Once it's learnt how the boat sails, it's able to position the tiller as you would do with your hands and put sort of, you know, three degree of rudders on something, whatever it is that it needs. It can take it and it can hold it in that position, which then makes it very economical. The older autopilots, uh, ones you'd have to go back to a basic flux gate, the ones which are before accelerometers and before gyroscopic um, compasses, they, a lot of them were not able to hold position. So if you've got an older autopilot system, older than about 10 years, it may well be that it is very, very hard on a battery system and it's very hard on a solar system. It, it might not work out that well. Hopefully, if you're putting all this money into batteries and into solar cells and charge controllers, the autopilot and, and how it operates will be within your scope of your research as well. For me, I know that the NKE system is extraordinarily economical. I can turn the amount of work that that system is doing up and down. I have a, a, a gauge which is marked uh, a gain or a, sorry, a control which is marked gain. Uh, if I put the gain right up on the NKE, then it will keep the boat on a much tighter course. It will keep it within one or two degrees of the course. If I turn the gain down, then it will keep the boat within five to seven degrees of the course and so on down to like the most economical setting of gain one, where it keeps the boat within like 10 degrees of the course. Now, in some setups, that's fine. If you want to be very economical, that's not a problem at all. When I've got such a high powered boat, 10 degrees could be the difference between a performance problem 
exactly on course and doing good or actually wiping the boat out. So I learned very quickly in the Southern Ocean with these um, high powered boats that if you don't get the autopilot to run at the tightest possible course heading, you can end up wiping out multiple times and not realizing why. It's not because the boat's overpowered, it's because the autopilot is not set on a tight enough avenue. But for, for batteries to stay <laughs> on track, nearly at the end of this, and I've stayed on track, not too many tangents, um, the, uh, the, the batteries are gonna have much more capability to hold a charge and, and, and give me energy through a period when there's very little light. Then when the boat tacks and there's more of the deck is able to show itself, like three quarters of this solar system is then able to show itself to the uh, sun. And then when I tack again and only one quarter of the system, whatever's on the companionway top, or sorry, on the cockpit top, that is um, gonna be doing some work. So I have to be aware of the usage. I have to be very aware of the temperature also. It's not really gonna get below zero in the boat but I do need to be aware of that. Um, where the boats sit, they're gonna sit on insulated foam, so they're not directly on the hull, but you know, unless the boat's frozen into the ocean, it's not really gonna be an issue, but temperature is a, a consideration. Temperature is a consideration in case it gets too low that the lithium batteries might not charge, but remember, lithium batteries give out their power regardless of the temperature, regardless of the load, and they give out the full power that's marked on the side of them. So my previous issue with lead acid batteries getting really slow and crappy in cold conditions goes out the window, because I know as long as I don't go below this threshold, the lithium uh, threshold at, at around um, zero, I'm gonna be completely fine. Okay, so the last part of all this then, if it's all so fantastic, is how much is it gonna actually cost? So I can only do this based on what I'm gonna be fitting in. So here's some of the numbers. The batteries, as it is right now, they are um, 650 Canadian dollars each. That's a 100 amp hour lithium phosphate battery. I'm gonna do this in Canadian dollars uh, and then at the end, I'll split it into some other currencies. Otherwise, I'm just going to be repeating, repeating all these currency names over the top. So 650 Canadian dollars will get me a 100 amp hour lithium phosphate battery delivered to my house. Taxes in and delivery. Thank God for Amazon. Next, a, a solar cell is going to be 140 Canadian delivered to my door from Amazon. The charge controllers at 20 amps are going to be 200 Canadian dollars delivered to my house. So then we start to multiply that up for six batteries, for four charge controllers, and for 12 solar panels. And in total, that'll come to, oh, and I've actually added in there a uh, 100 bucks for wire and 50 bucks for sealant, because I have to put sealant all around these holes as this thing comes in and out for the deck. So um, that will come to 6,530 Canadian dollars, and that's a little over 5,000 uh, US. So basically 6,500 Canadian, and 5,000 US, and for that, I'll have 600 amp hours of capacity, like real usable, not old style lead acid, I'm telling you numbers, I'm talking about actual usable capacity with 600 amp hours. The uh, solar cells will give me maximum 60 amps, okay? Now, it's gonna be considerably less than that, but when it gets down to a day where they are just maybe chucking out one amp each, then you have 12 amps, so you have between 12 and 60 amps going on on board the boat. Now, if we compare the figures to just the batteries, you just have to put that detail in there. If we were talking about lead acid batteries at 600 amp hours, we'd have to have over 1200 amp hours written on the side of the batteries 
before we could get 600 usable amp hours. So for this system, if we're going to start to um, try and get the same capacities, the solar cells are the same, the charge control is the same, whether it's lead or whether it's lithium, but you'd have to have 12 lead acid batteries. So although they're half the price for a cheap one, you'd have to have double the number of them. And basically, give or take the tax, it comes out the same amount. So you can either go and buy half a capacity of lead acid batteries, and it's going to weigh <laughs> the same. <laughs> or you can go, it's going to weigh the same as like getting all of that in lithium. Uh, or you can go and buy double the number of uh, lead acid batteries to then get the same capacity as the lithium batteries, but the lithium is still going to weigh half of it. So there's not really any kind of winning going on here at all. The bit where it starts to win is that if you take that figure, um, and I'm not sure how scientific any of this is. This is how I do my kind of monkey maths on the back of this little notepad, which has also got the shopping list on it. At six and a half thousand Canadian for this whole setup, it's going to last between eight and ten years, judging by the life of the batteries, the life of the cell, and the life of the charge controllers from all the reviews I can get and from the manufacturer's statements. Let's say eight years. So you can take all of this. And it's going to, every time you charge the batteries, remember we're going to have 3,000 possible cycles available to us with the lithium batteries. 3,000 cycles over eight years. For the life of these batteries, it's going to end up costing you uh, $2.17 Canadian or $1.70 US. So every time you charge the batteries, how much, ignoring the fuel, but how much does it cost you because the batteries are degrading, it's another cycle used up, another day's gone by, the exterior, you know, kind of, weather and environment on the solar cells is wearing them down by the time you get down to brass tacks it's going to cost you $2.17 Canadian or $1.70 US to charge the batteries to then have that available put the gas in on top of that that's depreciation on your gear now how much does it cost with the lead acid batteries it basically costs the same or you have half the capacity which means you have to charge twice as often which means it's going to run out twice as quick but that doesn't matter because they only charge a thousand times where the lithium batteries charge 3000 times. You basically end up over the lifetime of the batteries. It's like basically usably it's half the price to get the lithium things. So it's a higher amount going out the door to begin with. I totally get it. And I'm the one that loves to try and do all this stuff, cutting the corners. I'm in the managers as is section in Canadian Tire member. But if it's going to last twice as long, it's going to end up half the price and it's going to give me way less hassle with low battery warnings and alternators trying to pump 120 amp into things. And the, and the engine's going to be on for less time. So it means less gas being used or less fuel being used because the engine won't have to run as long because the lithium batteries can take on the charge quicker. It's like <laughs> there is no reason at all to use lead acid batteries. The only reason to use them is if that's where your budget's at at that point and you just have to get by with what you've done. And I am now uh, 43 and 300,000 miles into this and I'm just getting to the point where I'm like, you know what, I think I might get lithium batteries. So don't feel bad if it's not today, but definitely this is not a magic trick with all this stuff. This technology has come along a pace where we perhaps weren't looking. The prices have come down. The availability of stuff has come down. A lot of the gremlins have been worked out and what might have been seen as uh, disreputable or, or kind of cheap and flimsy uh, knockoffs are actually coming from the country which has done the most to push this forward and even their basic stuff is still fantastic for what we need it to do. You know, at the end of the day, 
if a battery arrives with you and it's come through all this entire process and it gets to you and the top's popped off it a little bit, it's just a little canister thing or whatever, like the hassle of sending it all back and all that crap, just seal it up, get going. There's nothing inside it. It's not leaking anything explosive into your boat, anything corrosive into your boat. So I think we need to get down off our high horses a little bit about this stuff. We also need to make sure that our neuroplasticity is at a high and start to look at this technology and realize you can power your boat with this stuff. You can power RVs and caravans with this stuff. You can actually very rapidly get to the bit where you're able to power your house with it. And we all know that the electric car uh, revolution is on the other side of tomorrow. Within five years, most of the people listening to this podcast will be driving electric. Mark my words, that's coming. That's real. That's what's happening, like it or not. The sound of a gas engine will start to become socially unacceptable and also indicative of the fact that your car is probably somewhat underpowered like <laughs> we start to wrap our heads around that stuff we'll start to realize that this technology for our boats we're exactly the right point now to cross over into it and um and i think it's going to be very advantageous for all of us so if you've got any experiences with solar cells with um batteries if there's some glaring error in something that i've put in here like this is this is bloke down the pub type conversation right we're all just trying to make our way along this is me getting into it so if i've said lithium ion when i should have said lithium uh, iron phosphate or I've called a volt an amp or something you just have to let me go on that one but as a general concept it's very exciting to look at and start to get your head around it a little bit and realize that suddenly this might mean the engine is not on as much as it ever used to be it might mean that the solar does all of the charging it might mean you can have extra things on board the boat <gasps> and get an air conditioner and an inverter because you can do that, that'll work out quite happily as long as the batteries can take it. And those crappy old uh, lead acid batteries, they couldn't take running the inverter. It would overheat the batteries, it would uh, cause the batteries to chuck out less power because the inverter draw was so high, and therefore the thing would only run for a very short period of time before the battery was flat. Lithium phosphate batteries is probably the cure-all for a lot of those little hang-ups which make uh, cruising and some aspects of racing just that little bit more uncomfortable. So go and have a look yourself. See if there's something that's useful in there, whether it's for tiny houses in the back of Maine or um, boats setting off from Nova Scotia around the world. I think uh, lithium iron phosphate batteries are here to stay and it's going to be good for all of us. So wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound and excited to learn about some other new thing that we can do with our boats. And until the next one, cheers. <laughs>